0: What is a person? What is a person? It's a question I want to begin with this morning as we begin. Of course, the answer to this question depends on the sense of the question. That is, we could define a person in terms of the compounds that make up their body, or you might say their genetic code. This would be one way to define who a person is. Yet, if I were to ask you, who are you, I'm guessing you wouldn't tell me the details of your genetic code. Well, it's true that my body, your body, contains chemical compounds and that we do have a unique genetic code. These details are not who I am. To be a person is to be something more. To ask, who am I? is not to ask what makes me biologically distinct. It's to ask about my life. It's to ask you about your life, about the people and the places and the events that have shaped your sense of identity. As an illustration, imagine that you were born or that you lived in Germany. You were born in Germany in the 1500s. Also imagine that you had the same exact genetic code and chemical makeup, would you be the same person? Well, in some ways, yes, but in any meaningful way, no. I think this illustrates that to be a person is more than our chemical and genetic makeup. It also reveals how how our identity is shaped by our social context, shaped by our experiences of the world and the way that we understand even our own history. To this point, as Americans, we put a high value on individuality and free will. You know this. You're an American. We like to think that we shape our destinies and that we are impervious to our surroundings. That is, our surroundings don't affect us. They don't corrupt us in any way. Although we don't say it, we believe our, our identity, our personhood, is me deciding the kind of person I want to be. Unfortunately, we don't make these kind of decisions in a vacuum. Rather, the definition of self grows out of the society that we inhibit. Like it or not, the framework of our greater, greater society impacts us and who we are and who we will become. Here's what I'm getting at. You and I are deeply impacted by the society that exists around us, and whatever your answer might be to the question, who am I or who are you, it is shaped by the culture, the context, and the community in which you exist. Benedict Anderson, he talks about how communities function in his book, Imagined Communities. He makes the observation that nations by definition, covers such a vast geographical space with villages and towns and cities that it's impossible for everyone to know everyone else. So he asked this question, what, what keeps the people of any particular nation together? How does a farmer in Bakersfield identify with a bus driver in Detroit? He doesn't ask that, I ask that. I'm not sure if you realize it or not, but a nation only makes sense if these two kinds of people can identify with each other. Otherwise, it just doesn't make sense. If the farmer in Bakersfield can identify with the bus driver in Detroit, it's in part because of a strong national narrative. Although different people, each shares a sense of identity, a sense of belonging, a sense of pride, as we call it. Thus, the farmer and the bus driver are able to identify with each other. One of the primary ways that nations accomplish this is through national anthems, national holidays, and a shared history. Like it or not, holidays like Thanksgiving, Fourth of July, and Veterans Day are tools to press America's national narrative onto the population. All of this serves to help 330 million people share, have a shared identity. This is how nations work. This means we don't actually need to know each other to belong to a community. We just need to have a shared understanding of a given culture, a given context, and our community. This means belonging to a given community is, as Benedict Anderson says, imaginary. It's not imaginary in the sense that it's not real, that it's not true, or that it doesn't exist. Rather, it's imaginary in the sense that community is rooted in a way of thinking. The farmer doesn't have to be an acquaintance with the bus driver to be a part of the same community. Their understanding of community is rooted in thinking the same way about their shared community, which brings us to our current situation. The church historian Carl Truman asks, I believe a very important question, he says, he asks, what happens when the narratives that provide us with our traditional identities lose their authority and become highly contested? What happens when the farmer in Bakersfield and the bus driver in Detroit no longer share a national story? What happens when each has a unique imagined community? What happens is fragmentation. And we see this in our day. As our culture moves away from a shared narrative, new imagined communities are emerging all around us. There is the black community, the LGBTQ plus community, the Asian community, the disabled community, the Christian community. One place we see this demonstrated is with the American Commemorative Months. Have you noticed how many there are? The Black History Month, the Irish American Heritage Month, the Deaf History Month, the Sikh Heritage Month, the Haitian Heritage Month, the Jewish American Heritage Month, and, of course, my personal favorite in May, National Bike Month. (laughs) And you know the list goes on. To be clear, my point is not to criticize commemorative months. I'm not here to do that. I'm not here to criticize imagined communities, and I'm certainly not here to commit, criticize our nation. My point is simply to help us understand something about the world in which we live. Here's the point. You and I find ourselves in a world that lacks solidarity. It lacks consensus. There's very little agreement in our world. In fact, there's very little harmony that exists in our day. You and I are living in a world in which people are free to choose their communities, even free to choose their own identities. How does this happen? Or how did this happen? Well, a thorough answer is certainly beyond the scope of our time this morning. Technology does play a key role. Not technology per se, rather the way technology has changed our access to information. You might say that the portal through which we receive or the the portal through which we receive information has grown exponentially in the last 50 years. There was a day in which there were fewer than 10 national newspapers. There was a day in which only a handful of studios produced the movies we watched or the music we listened to. I'm not sure if you're paying attention, but the sources are innumerable in our day. My, my smart TV has so many options of things to watch, it's unbelievable. It's absolutely mind-blowing, the amount of information that is available to me and my kids. Again, my point is not to criticize technology. I love technology. It's not even to suggest that we put limitations on the media. That's not why I'm here. My, my point is simply to help us understand how all of this brings us to our current American situation. At an increasing rate, American citizens no longer find their identities shaped by a shared narrative. But the narratives that shape our identities are often those of race, ethnicity, gender, sexuality, personal interests, etc. Our communities are fragmenting because they, sh- they lack a shared narrative. We might even describe our world and this American in America in particular, as a liquid world, a liquid world. Sociologist Zygmunt Bauman describes the world this way to summarize his thoughts. Our institutions, conventions, identities, and ideals no longer hold their shape. We live in a world with constant mobility and in constant change. Our world lacks rationality, characterization, rules, and order. And thus, it's hard to understand. Our world is unpredictable, and our world is unstable. What are the effects of such a liquid world? What kind of fruit does this liquid world produce? Well, in addition to fragmentation, America is experiencing catastrophic levels of depression, anxiety, suicide. If you realize this or not, but suicide is the second leading cause of death in 10 to 14 year olds. And on average, Americans are wealthier and health, healthier than they've ever been. So, where does all this leave us? I'm sure you didn't come to church this morning to hear social commentary. That being said, I believe the church has something compelling to offer us in this liquid world. What the church offers is solid ground. It offers clarity about this world. It, offer us some, it offers us something not given to change, not subject to the whims of man. We have a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. We have a hope that reaches outside this world to a greater and more lasting reality. I'm sure you've put on clothes that are too small. I'm not saying anything about your body. (laughs) But I'm sure it's true at some point in your life you put clothes on that were too small. Not recently, of course. At best, they are uncomfortable. And occasionally, they even may rip. <laughs> well, perspectives are worldviews. They function similarly. There's a worldview of reality, there's a worldly view of reality, excuse me, and of the self that doesn't fit our human nature. As we grope around for answers in this liquid world, it's not long before we realize that something doesn't fit. Tim Keller says, no one can live without meaning, satisfaction, freedom, identity, forgiveness, resolution of moral questions, and hope for the future. The culture's way to provide these things ultimately will not work. There's a verse in the Bible that says Christians are are to always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And I confess that sometimes I miss that. I I love talking about my Savior, but sometimes I fail to focus on this principal feature of my faith, hope. I know that most of you here know what I'm talking about because you have found this hope in Jesus Christ. However, it may be the case that there are some here who have not found this hope. It may be that you are wearing an outfit An outfit tailored by the world. And maybe this morning you sense that it's pinching. Whatever the case, in the time that is remaining this morning, I'd like us to talk about God's story, His world, and your place in that world. But even before I begin, I want you to know that at the end of this story, I'm going to ask you to make a decision. What I'm saying here is driving you towards a decision. I will ask if you're content to find the answers of the biggest questions in this life from this liquid world, or if you'd like to begin seeking those answers from a solid source. The foundation of the Christian message is that God is the one true and living ruler of all things. He is the Lord and King of everything that exists. The Bible puts it this way, You are worthy, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Revelation 4.11 In addition to being the ruler of this world, this verse says that God made the world. God made the world and He made us. Contrary popular, to popular belief, I don't have to actually convince you of this because you are yourself part of His creation, and you know it to be true. Further, He made us, He created us to rule His good world and to give Him thanks and honor. Here we've already encountered a problem. It, it's obvious that this is not our experience in the world right now. As we've already discovered, as I've introduced this message, the world is a broken place. There's great division, great injustice all around us. I've used that word fragmentation. We're a fragmented people. There are even the most despicable acts of violence committed against children in our day. How did God's good world get to this point? What happened? Everything that is wrong in our lives and in the world stems from the choices we've made. From the very beginning, we didn't want God to be our ruler. You and I and our ancestors rejected Him by deciding to live our own way. We live in defiance of Him. To pick up a previous metaphor, we traded in God's suit for one tailored by the world. What does this look like in our lives? Most of the time, we we simply ignore God. We keep Him at a distance. Maybe we replace Him with these vague notions of luck or superstition or some supernatural kind of thing out there in the world. Mostly, though, we just get on living with our lives. We don't give Him thanks. We don't acknowledge Him for being our creator and provider. We don't obey Him as a ruler. We follow our own desires and our own priorities. We live by the values of the world. The Bible puts it this way We all, this is Isaiah 53 6, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. The Bible calls this rebellion, excuse me, the Bible calls this rebellious stance sin. All of us have gone astray. And as I've tried to demonstrate this morning, and as you know in your heart, it doesn't work. Our self-rule fails and we suffer the consequences. We damage ourselves. We damage the people around us. We damage the world around us. And as the years pass pass on, we leave people in our wake. What then is God to do with us? What will God do about our rebellion against Him? Well, like any good ruler, God cares enough to take our rebellion seriously. He holds us accountable for our actions. Justice is an interesting thing because we often would like to escape justice, yet when a, a wrong is committed against us or a loved one, we're, commi- we're quick to demand justice justice. It's in our nature, I believe, to seek and expect justice, yet we love ourselves so much we can't allow these expectations to fall back on us. And God is different because God is God. It's in His nature to be perfectly just. It would be unjust, in fact, for Him to let our rebellion continue. In what way do do we experience God's judgment against our rebellion? Well, in many ways, in many places, but most importantly, in the reality of death. The corruption, the decay, and death in this world are part of God's punishment for our rejection of Him. But there's even a further judgment that we'll face. You and I will one day stand before God and we will give an account to Him for our lives. We'll have to give an account for the damage that we've done, for our personal rejection of Him as our ruler. The Bible puts it this way, Hebrews 9, 27, just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment I suppose you might say that God will give us what we've asked for. We've asked for separation, and He will grant it. He will cut us off from Himself permanently. And since God is the source of life and all good things, and is Himself eternal, being cut off from Him means a destruction that will never end. This is terrible news terrible news. Yet it's a prospect we all face because we're all guilty of rebelling against God. I understand. As part of the Christian message, it's hard to hear. You might even think, you might even be thinking, where's the hope in this? I thought there was some hope. But thankfully, this isn't the end of the story. God loves the world He created And God loves us. This means that He didn't leave us to suffer the consequences of our rebellion. God took action. This is where Jesus comes in. God sent His Son to the world to save us. Jesus is different than us, amen? He didn't rebel against God. He always lived under God's leadership. He gave honor and thanks to God. In fact, he obeyed him in everything. Jesus didn't deserve God's justice like you and I do. Yet, and you probably know this, Jesus did die. Although Jesus demonstrated amazing power, he healed the sick. He even raised a man named Lazarus from the dead. Jesus was executed on a Roman cross. The cross was the execution device of Jesus' day. There's nothing inherently holy or special about a cross. It was literally an execution device. In our day, I think we have a chair that you sit in and you have lethal injection. That's our modern-day execution device. Well, in the Roman times, Jesus' day, it was a cross. But why? Why was Jesus executed? Well, the answer to this question is a really important part of the Christian message. In fact, it's, I think, maybe the most important part. It's that Jesus died as our substitute, He died as our substitute like a substitute that stands in for another, Jesus stood in for us. That is, Jesus took upon himself the judgment and punishment that we deserved. You might say, and I love to say it this way, he died our death. Again, here's how the Bible says it. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. Isaiah 53:6 again. 53:6. And the Lord has laid on Jesus the sin of us all. By the way, that was written some thousand years before Jesus even came. And all of this, of course, is completely undeserved by us. You and I rejected God. But because God loves us, He sent His Son to die for us. After Jesus died, it was God who accepted His death as payment in full for our sins. We can imagine Jesus standing before God. And as God looked at His life, every action, every word spoken, everything He ever did, even His heart motivations... God was unable to see a single flaw. Jesus stood flawless before the holy judgment of God. And as a result, Jesus was raised from the dead. This is what the resurrection is about. The perfect life of Jesus was able to overcome the result of the sin in this world. You might say the grave couldn't hold Him. The Bible puts it this way in Acts 2, 24. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Death literally could not hold him under because of his perfect life. Having been raised from the dead, Jesus is now the ruler of God's world. In fact, Jesus plans to return to this world and will call us an account Call us to account for our rebellion against God. But Jesus is not God's, not only God's appointed ruler, but He's also the world's Savior. Because of His death in our place, He has the power to forgive us. He has the power to offer us forgiveness. Jesus already paid the penalty for sin. This means we can make a fresh start with God. We no longer have to be rebels. We can become friends of God. Even Jesus said this in John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this that someone laid down his life for his friends. He called us friends. Even something else, in this new life that God offers us, God himself comes to live within us by his spirit. The word I like to use to describe this is transformation. This transformation enables us to experience the joys of a new relationship with God. The Bible captures it this way, and actually we read it this morning in our Scripture passage, 1 Peter 1, 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So where does all this leave us? Well, you remember I told you that God's story ends with a decision. We could say it very simply, we have the choice between two ways to live. The first way is to live, the first way to live is to continue in our rebellion against God. Sadly, this is the choice that many people make. To make this choice is to believe that this liquid world offers the answers to the most important questions of life. One of the problems with this is that we're aiming at a moving target. The most critical answers and the deepest satisfaction you seek are elusive. These cannot be found in this world. You want to be free, but you are not. You must live for something. But whatever it is will enslave you, and it will lead you to exploit others. The end result of living this way is the inevitable and rightful judgment of God. You and I have to put up with the damaging consequences of rejecting God here and now. And we face the dreadful prospect of an eternity of separation from God. Thankfully, there is another way. There are two ways. There is another way. If we turn to God, if we ask for forgiveness, trusting in Jesus as our resurrected ruler and Savior, then everything changes. On the cross, Jesus reversed the power dynamics of the world. He gave up power in service, rather than exploiting others. He took the just penalty for our unjust rejection of God and our treatment of others. This means that God wipes the slate clean. God accepts Jesus' death as payment for our sinful rebellion and freely and completely forgives us. He then pours His own Spirit into our hearts and gives us a new life that stretches past death and into eternity. This second way leads to a new identity, one that provides unconditional love and is not based on the ups and downs of our performance. This identity creates a new freedom from being controlled by this liquid world, and it provides a forecast of deep satisfaction, beauty, and hope in the future. To choose this way is to find ourselves tailored in the best kind of clothes. So, which way will you live? If you choose to remain in your current condition, it may be that you don't, it may be the reason reason why, maybe that you don't believe some of this Christian message. Perhaps you don't believe that we are really rebels against God. Maybe you don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. If so, I would ask you to think carefully about your position. Do your research, do your homework. The stakes are high. I encourage you to read about Jesus yourself in the Bible. There's four biographies of Jesus in our Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Read those. And in fact, I would invite you to come back. We're we're studying one of those biographies right now here at our church. On the other hand, if, if you know that you are a rebel and you would like to start living God's way, here's what you should do talk to God. Talk to God. God wants you to talk to Him. He wants you to admit that you've rebelled against Him and that you deserve punishment. God also wants you to ask for forgiveness on the basis of Jesus' death on the cross. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you talk to Him, Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. So you do that in a meaningful way. You believe it in your heart. God raised Him from the dead. You will be saved. It's that simple. For with a heart, one believes and is justified, and with a mouth, one confesses and is saved. It's my hope that even this morning, you might talk with God. I realize we've covered a lot of ground this morning. (laughs) We explored some of the cultural challenges of our day. I've argued that our world lacks the ability to give you solid answers to the most important questions. And I've argued, I've tried to argue, that the Christian message, the story of God, the story of His world, and our place in this world is the singular message that gives you the answers to the most or the biggest questions of this life. Friends, it's the Christian message that gives us a meaning in life that suffering can't take away but can even deepen. All of us suffer. But the Christian message gives us hope in the midst of our suffering. It gives us a reason, an understanding for it. This world is broken and that God is on a mission to change it. The Christian message... Gives us a satisfaction that isn't based on our circumstances. Our joy and our hope transcend whatever we encounter in this life. The Christian message gives us a freedom that doesn't reduce community and relationships to thin transactions, gives us robust uh, interactions with one another. They're transcendent. It gives us an identity that isn't fragile or based on our performance or the exclusion of others. It gives us a way to both to deal with guilt and forgive others without residual bitterness or shame. The Christian message gives us a basis for seeking justice that does not turn us into oppressors ourselves. It gives us a way to face not only the future, but death itself with poise and peace. The Christian message gives us an explanation for the sense of transcendent beauty and love that I know you have experienced. It's my hope that this morning you might see your indelible need and longing for these things. And you would see them as echoes of your need for God. With all this in mind, I'd like for us to go to God in prayer. And I invite you to talk to God yourself. I'm going to pray a prayer. It's my prayer. But it can be your prayer. In some ways, it's, it's like a prayer template my hope is that as I pray, th- pray this prayer, that you might make it your own, that there might be some kind of handoff. <laughs> that you can pray it in your heart, and it can be your prayer. And I'm going to do that now, so if you would bow your head. Dear God, I know that I am not worthy to be accepted by you. I don't deserve your gift of eternal life. I am guilty of rebelling against you and ignoring you. And I'm sorry. Lord, I need your forgiveness. Thank you for sending your son to die for me so that I may be forgiven. Thank you, Lord, that he rose from the dead to give me new life transformation, a new birth. Please forgive me and change me so that I may live with Jesus as my ruler. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. It's my greatest hope that this prayer might become your prayer. And of course, we would love to speak to you about that i would love to speak to you about that believing the christian message is only the beginning as many of us know it's a journey the bible has a lot to say about what it looks like to be a follower of jesus you can see it for yourself there's a lot here to cover there's a there's a lot to rejoice in There's a welcome card in the pew pocket. That's what we call this little pocket in front of you. There's a welcome card in there. If you prayed that prayer this morning to receive forgiveness, I'd just love for you to let us know. Pull out one of those cards, put your name on it, write your email address. Just write on there that box that you did that this morning and drop it in one of the offering boxes in the back. Even better, I'm going to be up front at the end of service and we'll have some of the leaders of our church up here as well. And If you have any questions about anything that I've said this morning, or if you prayed that prayer with me this morning, I'd love to hear from you as well. At this time, I'm going to pray actually again just to, as we as we begin to close our service here. I'm going to pray again briefly, and I'm going to invite our music team up in a moment, and they're going to lead us in a closing song, and after they're done, I'm going to return, and I'll dismiss our service at the end. God in heaven, we thank you for this Gathering, we just come to You again in prayer, Lord. We thank You for this time talking about this message, talking about Your way in the world and how You sent Your Son, Jesus, to die for our sins. Lord, I pray that as we sing this final song, it would be an act of worship again, and we just pray Your continued blessing on the final moments of our service. Amen.